happening. We're on the schedule three times this month, so we should be looking at three different of the minor prophets. So I want to start this morning by talking about the minor prophets just in general, beginning today with the first of the minor prophets as they appear chronologically in our Bible. Well, chronologically is not the right word. As they appear um, canonically, I guess you would say, um, as the order that they appear in our canon of Scripture. But Hosea was not the oldest of the writing prophets. Of course, we use the word minor prophets referring to them, and I should start out by stating that doesn't mean that they are of lesser importance than the other prophets. That's talking about the size of their books, the size of their writings. Of course, Isaiah, Ezekiel would be major prophets, and those are long books, and um, the minor prophets are short books, hence the name minor prophets. Let's talk a little bit about these minor prophets in general. I liked what John Phillips said in introducing the minor prophets. He said that, um, let me go to the second quote first. He says, it's a mistake to think that a prophet's primary function was to foretell the future. The prophet did that, of course, but he was first of all a man with a message from God for his own generation, a fourth teller rather than a foreteller. And if you're like me, often when I hear the word prophet, I think about somebody who's telling the future. Even though I know that's not factual, um, that's what I associate with prophecy. And it's what most people do. If you hear people who really get into talking about prophets in our day in Christianity, they're often talking about, oh, that prophet, he's, uh, there's a prophet at that church, he's really great, he can tell you your future, um, is what is often associated with that. And I've known people that have gone to prophets and had their futures foretold, and I'm just always entertained with how generic those prophecies usually are, and they could ju- do just about anything in their lives, and it would sound like the prophecy that had been prophesied over them at the local charismatic church. Um, But that is not the primary concept of a prophet in scripture. They were men who proclaimed the word of God, men who proclaimed truth. Um, So I think if we took that in the time period in which we live, or if you want to call it the dispensation in which we live, a prophet is one who's going to proclaim truth. We have words from God right here. We're going to be proclaiming the word of God if we're a true prophet. Yes, sir. Then there's John the Baptist, who was the last prophet, mm-hmm. foretell any future. Good point. Yeah, John the Baptist, the last of the prophets. He was that middle, that, that, that prophet between the Old and New Testaments and um, the last one, and he didn't give any future prophecies. That's a really good point. <coughs> he didn't foretell. He was a fourth teller. So we need to understand as we study the prophets, it's not we're getting in here to see what's going to happen in the future, but it's getting in here to see what was his message, each of these prophets, what was his message to the people um, 
to his contemporaries, those people he was preaching to on that day. There was something specific he was trying to tell them that God was giving him. John Phillips also says the appearance of a prophet was always a mark of apostasy and rebellion in Israel. I used to study, would read the prophets, and it just boggled my mind how these poor men were so mistreated, how people got so angry at them all the time. And that really bothered me. Um, How could it be that they were always rejected by the people they were preaching to? Till I realized how they're preaching at a time when it is complete, utter rebellion against God. What are the people going to do? God didn't send prophets to Israel because everything was going good. He sent prophets because everything was going bad. So when you understand that, it's it's really helpful. I mean, there was a point as a really young preacher, um, just wanting to see revival and wanting to see people respond and wanting to be able to preach truth and people accept truth. And it really bothered me how many people didn't. Um, and then one day I was reading in Revelation and Jesus was talking to the church of Laodicea and he said, behold, I stand at the door and knock. And I realized Jesus was outside of the church of Laodicea. He was knocking on their door. That is not a, a verse of personal invitation for salvation. That's talking about Christ fellowship with the church. He was outside the church knocking on the door. And then he said, if any man will hear he'll come in with him and sup with him. And I realized, you know what? If we live in the Laodicean church age, which I believe we do, um, that means that there are only going to be a remnant of people who actually open the door and let Jesus in. There's only going to be a remnant of people who are really interested in biblical truth and receiving that. And so it just suddenly became okay if I preached a congregation and most of the congregation didn't receive it. One or two people accepted the truth. That was okay because that's what they were doing to Jesus in our day. And so it just, it helped my perspective in realizing my responsibility is to give truth. My responsibility is to love people. My responsibility is to follow Christ. And if someone responds well, then that's wonderful. I was just responsible to make sure my heart is right and that I'm presenting truth in a correct way and in a manner to where it can be received. And people aren't rejecting um, me, but they're rejecting the word of God if they reject. Now, let's look here at the timeline of the prophets. Now, I didn't just put the minor prophets in this timeline. Um, I wanted to put a few others. You'll notice Isaiah is in here. Daniel's in here which I've seen him in some people's list, listed with the minor prophets. Some people put him with the major prophets, and then some people don't put him anywhere. Not sure where he's supposed to belong there. But anyway, um, and then Ezekiel and Jeremiah are in here as well. I just wanted us to see of the writing prophets where these, um, where these men would fall. Today we're talking about Hosea here, somewhere around the years... 760 to 700 BC. And notice the time is going backwards. Um, That's confusing to me to work with anything BC because I keep trying to auto, I keep trying to correct my own dates. I put them on the paper and then realize I put them backwards. (laughs) 
Oh, no, I've got to keep thinking backwards. It's BC. Okay, we're doing a countdown to the time of Christ. Anyway, so we're looking at Hosea here, 760 to 700 BC, somewhere in here. Um, from commentary to commentary, you'll see the dates change a little bit <clears throat> by 10, 20 years at different places. And I will make a, a print out of this here in a couple weeks. I didn't want to do that this week because I'm still tweaking the dates on this. But um, here's a, a basic overview. And I actually got these dates. I took all of these dates out of Wilmington's Guide to the Bible and put them together to create the chart. But let's look this morning at Hosea. <clears throat> Number one, we're going to look at the man. Secondly, we'll look at the marriage. We'll look at his message. And then we'll look at mercy. But as we begin this morning, talking about the man. First of all, we'll notice as we study the book of Hosea, and this will not in any way be a detailed study of Hosea, but an overview, and I hope that all of you will go home and read Hosea this week and be able to look for some of the things we talk about and get some new insights yourself as well. But first of all, we see he was from the northern kingdom, and we assume this for a number of reasons, but one of them which I think is the strongest, is in chapter 7 and verse 5, the way he refers to the king of Israel. He says, in that day, um, sorry, in the day of our king, the princes have made him sick with bottles of wine. He said, in that day, whose king? Our king. He wasn't coming from the southern kingdom saying, your king has a problem. He was saying, our king. Um, Anyway, a man from the northern kingdom, and the kingdoms were divided at this time in history, about 200 years or so before the time of Hosea. The 10 northern tribes here rebelled, and they formed their own nation, leaving the southern two tribes to create the king, become known as the kingdom of Judah. So in the north, we had the kingdom of Israel. Their capital was in Samaria. And then um, the capital of Judah was Jerusalem. He refers to Israel in two different ways here. He calls them Israel. He also refers to them as Ephraim, which was another name for the nation because it was one of the main tribes of the northern kingdom. Um, the kings, let's see. The kings that were reigning when he was writing. Let's look here, Hosea chapter 1 and verse 1. The word of the Lord that came unto Hosea, the son of Beri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. So he lists kings of um, Judah here. Um, and he lists this King Jeroboam, which I believe was the second Jeroboam, king of Israel. There were a number of other kings that ruled during the time of Hosea, um, but they're not listed here. And I think probably the reason why they're not listed is because they were not of the lineage that God had ordained to be kings. And... Um, in fact, it was quite a mess. One by one, these kings didn't reign that long because when we come to the throne, 
And then this guy would come in and kill the king. And so he'd take over the kingdom and he'd reign for a month and then somebody would kill him and they'd take over. I mean, it was, it was a really chaotic mess that he came into. Jay Sidlow Baxter said that um, Jeroboam II is the last king who reigns in Israel with any semblance of divine appointment. The kings who follow seize the throne by murdering its po- occupant at the time. And we'll, we'll see in a minute that it's reference to them killing their kings. Um, just talking about the mess politically that the nation was in, and we'll talk more about that in just a minute. But here we have a man, Hosea. We don't know a lot about him other than the time period in which he lived, the kings under which he served or during whose period he served. But he was called to live out the message that he was to preach. He had a message and the first three chapters of Hosea is about his life and about this message that he was to present to the people. Um, Herbert Lockyer said, here we go. The prophet was not only God's messenger of grace, he reflected God's character and foreshadowed ultimate redemption through the Messiah and Israel's reestablishment as a nation. So how was all this to happen? We come to point two to see about, see this message that he was presenting. The message was found in his marriage. He had a very troubled marriage. If you read in verse number two, it says, the beginning of the word of the Lord by Hosea. And the Lord said to Hosea, go take unto thee a wife of whoredoms and children of whoredoms, for the land hath committed great whoredom departing from the Lord. Now, some will argue on whether or not his wife was already a strange woman when they married. Um, Some commentators say there's no way that our holy God would tell him to marry a woman who was immoral. Um, So some will take the language and argue about, well, it really says it this way, and it really, and so I I, I don't know. I can see both points. So um, I'm... I can't take major stand on either side, but I can take this stand very majorly. God knew her heart before they got married. And so here God sends him to marry this woman that he knows is going to be a strange woman. He knows her heart. He knows she already is. I mean, Hosea gets married. Say maybe, maybe Hosea didn't know what was going to happen when he got married. Okay, so he's going to be shocked. He's going to be surprised. This is all going to maybe be disturbing. But regardless, we know that God is sovereign and that God knows. God knows the future. And so sometimes that's hard for us to be able to wrap our minds around. Um, But what I do see in this verse is that God knew before the whole thing happened. And God had a lesson that he wanted Um, Hosea to present to the nation that could only happen as he would go through this dark, dark time himself. And so we see that God definitely knew her heart. He knew beforehand what was going to happen. And Hosea would have to demonstrate um, for the whole nation what the situation with his wife was. Now, we see that he also had children. 
In fact, before we read that, I want to go here later. Here we go. Um, G. Campbell Morgan said, God interprets himself to us through our own experiences. Over and over again, we find that the experiences of an hour cannot be understood at the time. So when things are going really bad in our lives, we just sometimes we cannot see what the purpose is and what God's doing. But presently, we look back and see that when we talked to Jehovah at the first, he led us, even though the thing we did brought us into tragedy. For in the midst of the tragedy, we have discovered God. Read that again. In the midst of the tragedy, we have discovered God. Well, what was it that Hosea discovered about God? Here he has a wife who he very obviously in the story here loves. His wife goes away. She goes after other men. She wanders away. She ends up to the point where she is actually in slavery. And he has, when he goes and pursues his wife to bring her back, he actually has to buy his wife. So here we have, if you can imagine the prophet Hosea, he's preaching to the nation. He, and we're going to talk about his messages in a minute, but his main message is to return to the Lord. You've sinned, you as a nation. I mean, he says it here at the end of verse two, he's having to marry a woman of whoredom because Israel has departed from the Lord. Um, they have gone, as a nation, have gone after other gods. And the northern kingdom had, they had set up the golden calf to represent Jehovah. And before long, I mean, it's the golden calf. That's what they're worshiping. They had one at Dan. Um, they had one, oh, I believe it's Samaria, maybe it was the other, no, Bethel. Um, there was false worship happening at Bethel as well, and Hosea mentions Bethel. But um, he was to illustrate this. And so can you imagine as he goes out, he's been preaching to the nation, you need to return to God, you need to return to your love, and he gets up to preach this message, but one day he's not up behind the pulpit, he's not out under the tree, he's in the marketplace, and he comes and he buys his wife back. Imagine if you're standing there watching. I'm not sure, you know, Laura and I were discussing this week whether he stood there in the marketplace and preached another sermon or not. But as you come to the conclusion, if you follow the whole of Hosea's message, when it comes to the end, he's trying to tell Israel, return to your God because your God loves you and he wants to buy you back. He wants you back. Yes, God is angry with you. Yes, you are under his hand of punishment, but God loves you. God loves you and he wants you back. And this was really the tragedy that, <clears throat> that he was dealing with in his own marriage was to represent what was happening in the nation. Now he had children. He had three children with his wife here, Gomer, I um, always, as my whole life, I get so tickled when I read the, his wife's name, Gomer. I just think of Gomer Pyle on the Andy Griffith Show. But he marries Gomer, and they have three children. Each one of these children, their names are interesting. Laura and I really wrestle with names when we're naming a child, and we're to that point again as we're preparing for this new little one in November, and wrestling with a name that they're there's 
real importance in a name that can be a way of giving a blessing. Um, it can be a way of giving some life purpose. But um, for the prophet Hosea, it was also a message. The names of his children were a message to the nation. And the first child, he names Jezreel. If we keep reading here, look down at verse 4. And the Lord said unto him, call his name Jezreel. For yet a little while, and I will avenge the blood of Jezreel upon the house of Jehu, and will cause to cease the kingdom of the house of Israel. And it shall come to pass in that day that I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. Now, if you want to see what he's talking about there, you can go to 2 Kings chapter 10 and read about this. But I like the way Haley, um, Henry Haley referred to this. He says, Jezreel was the city of Jehu's bloody brutality. The valley of Jezreel was the age-old battlefield on which the kingdom was about to collapse. By naming his child Jezreel, Hosea was saying to the king and to the nation, retribution, the hour of punishment is come. Imagine naming your child and the point of your child's name is to warn the nation that God is judging. If you keep reading here, we see that he had other children. Let's look at the second. <clears throat> and she conceived again and bare a daughter. And God said unto him, call her name Lo-Ruhamah, uh, for I will no more have mercy upon the house of Israel, but I will utterly take them away. And this name literally means no mercy. So first he says, the day of judgment has come. God is avenging the blood of Jezreel. So the name Jezreel. Then secondly, he has a daughter sometime later, names her Lo-Ruhamah, meaning there is no mercy. I'm not, <clears throat> I'm not extending mercy now. Judgment is come. I mean, this is a severe message through these children. Verse 7, but I will have mercy upon the house of Judah and will save them by the word of the Lord <clears throat> and will not save them by bow, nor by sword, nor by battle, by horses, nor by horsemen. Now, when she was weaned, lo Ruhamah, or when she had weaned, lo Ruhamah, she conceived and bare a son. Then said God, call his name, lo Ami, for ye are not my people and I will not be your God. Now, it's interesting that um, there are groups of people, Laura and I, we weren't, well, we weren't even a couple yet at Indianapolis when we got attacked one time by a young man in the lobby who noticed my lapel pin had an Israeli and American flag. I had put it on the Sunday after 9-11, and at that point, it was, I was still wearing it all the time on my suit, and um, he noticed that on Sunday morning as we're waiting for the bus to come and pick us up for church. Why are you wearing that? Why am I wearing what? That pin. Showing that I'm standing with Israel? Why would you do that? They are no longer God's people. The Old Testament said, they are not my people. I mean, and this guy just goes on and on in the lobby. I mean, he's just blasting the whole time. He didn't read the whole book because the message is, okay, punishment has come. There is no mercy. You're not my people, but you got to keep reading. Don't start there because then he says, but I want you back. Yes, there's judgment, 
yes, there's trouble. Yes, there's some punishment here, but you are my people and I love you. That's the reason why I, I titled this Hosea, um, the, the love of God on public exhibition. Because this is a very public thing. I mean, here he goes back and buys his wife in front of the nation. Here he names his children and each of these names is a message to the entire nation. And yes, it's a bad message. God is judging. But if you read chapter two and chapter three, we find that he wants Israel back. And he demonstrates this by having Hosea go out and purchase his wife and buy her back to himself. Look at chapter three. And verse number five, afterward shall the king of Israel return. That word return is used 15 times in Hosea. And seek the Lord their God and David their king and shall fear the Lord and his goodness. When? In the latter days. Something else is going to happen between this message of judgment and the latter days. It's that time of Israel being put away for a, a, a period of time. And God still wants Israel back. He still loves Israel. But there's something else hidden in here that Paul spotted. And if you look over at Romans chapter 9, Romans chapter 9, Paul tells us a little bit about what would happen. Israel put away for a time, I keep saying that, um, Romans chapter 9, he's talking about Gentiles coming to the Lord. If you read in verse number 6, not as though the word of God was, has, hath taken none effect, for they are not all Israel, which are Israel, neither because they are the children of Abraham, or are they all children. But in Isaac shall thy seed be called, that is, they which are the children of the flesh. These are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted of the seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time will I come and Sarah shall have a son. Skip down to verse 25. And one, sorry, and he saith also in Osi, which is the Greek version of the name Hosea. So he's referring to Hosea here. I will call them my people, which are not my people, and her beloved, which was not beloved. And it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said unto them, ye are not my people, there shall be called, they sh uh, sorry, there shall they be called the children of the living God. What is he saying? Uh, Paul references back to this showing that there would be a people who were not his people, that are going to be called his people. They're going to be called his beloved. Who was that? He's talking about Gentile believers. He's talking about the church. We live in the church age, and as Gentile believers, we are a part of the bride of Christ. The day will come, he will rapture the church out of here, and it'll be all about Israel again on this earth. Why? Because he still loves his people, Israel. And they're going to come back to him. Let's look thirdly at the message of the book. Now, in order to really understand the message, we need to notice 
and understand the day in which Israel was preaching, sorry, Hosea was preaching. Look at the condition of Israel. Let's look at their moral condition, first of all. Um, In chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, hear the word of the Lord, ye children of Israel. So this is where his sermons really begin, 1 through 3. If you want to look up and figure out outlines and divisions of the book, the real division happens, 1 through 3 is the narrative of his life, Everything after that is, you could say, a potpourri of his sermons. Um, It's really difficult for commentators to outline the book. Because I I wonder as I read it, um, and I've seen some commentators sort of hint to this idea, I just wonder if it's just clips of some of his sermons. Um, And sometimes you're reading along and you're like, wait, did he just change what he's talking about? Um, sometimes he gives lists, lists of things that, I mean, everything's very coherent. Everything fits together, yet it's not a normal way of writing for a prophet. Um, and so I just wonder if they're a little, oh, let's take this clip of this sermon and put it here, and then this clip of this sermon. We're getting an overview of his some 50 to 70 years of preaching to the nation of Israel. So here's the beginning of these sermons. Hear the word of the Lord, ye children of Israel. For the Lord hath a controversy with the inhabitants of the land, because there is no truth, nor mercy, nor knowledge of God in the land. So looking at the nation of Israel, he can look at them and truly say, there's no truth. There's no mercy. There's no knowledge of God. By swearing and lying and killing and stealing and committing adultery, they break out. That means they they want no restraints at all. And blood toucheth blood. What is that talking about? Murder causing more murder. You know, oh, you killed my brother. I'm going to kill you. You killed my husband. I'm going to kill you. You killed my, you know, and just one after another, they're avenging one another. It's just a time of, hmm. yeah, if you turn on the news, you might hear reports about a guy killing his girlfriend, you know, that kind of stuff. You turn on the news and you see the president speak and realize he's speaking lies. Um, you, you listen to the CDC and their reports are all over the place and it's obvious they're telling lies and you wonder what they're trying to hide. Oh, wait, no, I'm sorry. I'm talking about a mirror. There's a lot of parallels between what Hosea says about his nation of Israel and what's happening in America today. It really is unbelievable. But there's blood after blood. I mean, it is a time of, I mean, the morals are gone. Why? Because he said, there's no knowledge of God. The nation doesn't know God. I mean, when they set up the nation 200 years before, they built, they made golden calves to worship. For two, I mean, can you imagine how fast? I mean, I, I see the decline that America has taken, and we've taken a much slower ramp. When they established their nation, they set up golden calves. I mean, right up front, they're set up for a major fast decline. I cannot imagine how bad it was in the nation of Israel at the time. Let's look. That's their morals. Let's look at their politics. Chapter 7, 
He had colorful politics. Chapter 7, beginning of verse 1. When I would have healed Israel, when the iniquity of Ephraim was discovered, and as I said, Ephraim is a reference to the nation of the, of the northern kingdom, and the wickedness of Samaria, there's their capital, for they commit falsehood. Isn't that interesting? They commit falsehood. So there is, there is deception. There is, there's fraud is what that literally means, the word falsehood here. For they commit falsehood. They commit fraud. And the thief cometh in, and the troop of robbers spoileth without. So there's gangs going around stealing things. They're looting they're stealing. And apparently this is okay. I heard someone recently say that there was some city. I'm not, I thought I knew what city they said, but what was interesting is they said that the police there have said only call 911 in the case of emergencies. Was that Austin? Okay, that's what I thought. Okay. So supposedly in Austin, right? You only call the police for emergencies and robbery is not an emergency. So it's now okay in our capital. If you think things are so great in Texas, you are walking in your sleep. Um, it only appears so. When in our capital, such things would be the case. This place is not as good as we think. Um, it's really sad and it's really scary. But here in the nation of Israel, he says there's faults, so there's fraud in the capital. There's thievery. Troops of robbers going out stealing. Verse 2, and they consider not in their hearts that I remember all their wickedness. It never even occurs to them that God is paying attention. Now their own doings have beset them about. They are before my face. They make the king glad with their wickedness. The king, he was taking pleasure in all this, and the princes with their lies. They are all adulterers as an oven heated by the baker who ceaseth from raising after he hath kneaded the dough until it be leavened. In the day of our king, the princes have made them sick with bottles of wine. He stretcheth out his hand with scorners, for they have made ready their heart like an oven whilst they lie in wait. Their baker sleepeth all the night. In the morning it burneth as a flaming fire. They are all hot as an oven and have devoured their judges. All their kings are fallen. Notice that statement there. All their kings are fallen. Remember what I said about one king after another, killing a king and getting, you know, taking himself, the kingship on himself. There is none among them that calleth unto me. If you look at chapter 8 and verse 14, sorry, chapter 8, verse 4, they have set up kings, but not by me. Remember what Jason Little Baxter said? We read it a minute ago that Jeroboam was the last king with any semblance of any God-ordained authority. They have made princes, and I knew it not, for their silver and gold have they made them <clears throat> have they made them idols that they may be cut off. So we see the moral decline of the nation, we see the political decline of the nation. 
Now let's look at the religious decline of the nation in chapter 6 and verse number 9. We read, And as troops of robbers wait for a man, so the company of who? Priests murder in the way by consent, for they commit lewdness. I have seen a horrible thing in the house of Israel. There is the whoredom of Ephraim. Israel is defiled. When I read through this the first time the other day preparing to teach this, I didn't catch who this troop of robbers was. Who is this? He says, And as troops of robbers wait for a man, so the company of priests, what do they do? They murder in the way by consent, for they commit lewdness. He says the priests are like gangs of men who hang out in wait to jump on someone and to kill them. He said this is the condition of the priests. Look in chapter 8 and verse 4. We just read that, but look at the last part of the verse. Of their silver and their gold have they made them idols that they may be cut off. There was gross idolatry. Um, Chapter 10, uh, starting at verse 12, he says, So so to yourselves in righteousness, reap in mercy, break up your fallow ground. He said, reach down to that hard level of soil that is causing this barrier under the ground that's causing you to not have good a good harvest in your hearts. You're not receiving the word. You're not receiving my message. You're not hearing from me. Why? Because you're the fallow, there's fallow ground in your heart. Your heart is too hard. He says, for it is time to seek the Lord till he come and rain righteousness upon you. So here he is preaching to the nation. He's telling them, okay, it's already too late. There is no mercy. You're not my people anymore. And then he says, but break up the fallow ground of your heart. And if you read through the book of Isaiah, you see Okay, sure. At the very beginning, he said there's not time, but he keeps telling them, you've got a chance. You've got a chance. I mean, what did Jonah say when he got to Nineveh? God's going to destroy you. And how many days was it? He gave them a time period. But they repented and God spared them. They were wicked Gentile nation and God spared them. How much more would he spare his own people when he's brought such a severe message, he says, break up the fallow ground of your heart. Get your heart right with God. Verse 13, ye have plowed wickedness. You're not listening. I asked you to plow up your hearts and you plowed wickedness. Ye have reaped iniquity. Ye have eaten the fruit of lies because thou didst trust in the way in the multitude of the mighty men. Their trust was not in God. This is the condition of the nation. It is immoral. It is politically corrupt. The priests have become just evil, vile men, and they're completely given over to idolatry. Um, G. Campbell Morgan said, we have in the book of Hosea, one of the most arresting revelations of the real nature of sin. And one of the clearest interpretations of the strength of divine love. We see in the message of Hosea their great, terrible wickedness. But we also see God's great love for them. 
Now, as you continue reading through Isaiah, we, or Hosea, we see that he did tell them of a coming captivity. Some of these verses um, <clears throat> that reference this, um, if you look at chapter 11 and verse 5, he shall not return into the land of Egypt. So he has made this statement before that Israel's going to go back to Egypt. Now he's clarifying. He was not talking literally back to Egypt. For he says, he shall not return into the land of Egypt, but the Assyrian shall be his king because they refused to return. Because they did not return to the Lord. This is one of those 15 times the word return is used. They did not return to the Lord because of that. They're going to be taken into the Assyrian captivity. And we see here a map of these captivities. First of all, Israel was taken out. (coughs) They were taken (coughs) up and dispersed. What the Assyrians would do when they would come in and um, invade a nation and they would take them, you know, the Babylonians would come in and that's what the uh, the green lines are about, showing um, the captivity of Israel into Babylon, which um, books like the book of Daniel deals with. Um, they would take the people into their own country. We get the idea, maybe even had their own living quarters, their own settlements, their own area. Um, We see Ezekiel is preaching. Um, They're setting up the synagogue system is established in Babylon because there's still these Jewish areas and they're keeping their culture for the most part. But the Assyrians, part of their goal was to destroy the culture. They would take, come in, they would take some of the people out. And then in a future time, which we see represented by the orange here, they would bring in people from other nations because they wanted to destroy the local culture. So the Assyrians, whereas the Babylonians, they might take pride in the culture of the people they overtook. The Assyrians said, no, we want to wipe out these cultures because we are superior. Our our culture is superior. So they come in, take them out. And then with the people that are left behind, they send in new people. Then they can intermarry. They can mix up their religions. They can mix up their ways of life. Where was the capital of Israel? Where did we just say? Samaria. Who were the hated people group in Israel during the time of Christ? The Samaritans. Why? They were half Jew, half whatever other countries they had been brought out of. Why? Because that was part of the goal of the Syrians, was to mix up these cultures. Why did God allow this? It's part of his judgment on the nation of Israel that this terrible thing would be happening. And so we see the message is to return to your God. As I said, 14 times, 15 times, they're called to return to God. But we find at the end of this that in God's great mercy, he does tell them that time will come, that you are going to return. And if we look at the uh, last chapter, Hosea chapter 14, O Israel, return unto the Lord thy God, for thou hast fallen by thine iniquity. Take with you words and turn to the Lord. Say to him, and this is the words that he gave Israel to pray when they come back to God. Hasn't happened quite yet. But when it does, he says, this is what you should say. Take away all iniquity and receive us graciously. So will we render 
the calves of our lips. What sacrifices are we going to give? He said, we're going to give the praise of our lips, the calves of our lips. These are the sacrifices. Asher shall not save us. We will not ride upon horses. Neither will we say any more to the work of our hands. Ye are our gods. For in thee, the fatherless find mercy. I will, look what God says, I will heal their backslidings. I will love them freely. For mine anger is turned away from him. So there was a time God said, I was angry at Israel. I put them away. But just like Hosea went and bought his wife back, he said, I will return and they will return. He says, verse five, I will be, in the, I will be as the dew of, unto Israel. He shall grow as the lily and cast forth his roots as Lebanon. His branches shall spread and his beauty shall be as the olive tree and his smell as Lebanon. They that dwell under his shadow shall what? return. They shall revive as the corn and grow as the vine. The scent thereof shall be as the wine of Lebanon. Ephraim and wine in the Old Testament was often a picture of joy. He's showing this is going to be a joyful place. Ephraim shall say, what have I to do anymore with idols? There's true repentance here. What do I have to do with idols? I have heard him. Look at that. I've heard him. I've heard his voice and observed him. I am like a green fir tree. From me is thy fruit found. Who is wise and he shall understand these things. Prudent and he shall know them. For the ways of the Lord are right and the just shall walk in them. But the transgressors shall fall therein. So while God gave them a chance to turn, he gave them a chance to repent. They did not take it, but he says, I still love them. I still want them back. There will be a future return of Israel. To quote Henry Haley again, he said, Hosea's book is about four things. Israel's idolatry, Israel's wickedness, her captivity, and her restoration. Hosea had as filthy a mess as is found anywhere in the Bible. The beastly degradation of the people was simply unbelievable. Yet Hosea labored unceasingly to make them see that God still loved them. Never allow yourself to follow the heresy that God has permanently put Israel away. Because that is not our God. There will be a day that Israel will return. And that gives me so much encouragement as a Christian. Because if God loved Israel this much, he gave his son to die for me. No matter how wicked I am, no matter how sinful my heart may be, no matter how many times I have to come and confess sin to God, I know that he still loves me. He has an undying love. What an awesome thing. I want to read that last thing again. Yet Hosea labored unceasingly to make them see that God still loved them. What a precious, precious truth. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this message of Hosea. Lord, I thank you that during these difficult days in our nation, Lord, as we see such corruption and such immorality, just open immorality, such a disregard for you and your word and your ways, Lord, we can hold to the truth from the message of Isaiah that you still love us. 
And Lord, I don't know what the future holds exactly right now for our nation, but I know that you love me. And I know that I belong to you. And Lord, I thank you that I have this peace and this hope. And Lord, I just pray that you would help us, every one of us, to cling to the truth of the message of Hosea, that yes, we do need to repent of sin, that we need to make sure our heart is clean and right before you. But in all of our conditions and in all of our backslidings, we hold to this truth that you still love us and you want us back. And Lord, I just pray that you would help every one of us to hold to this truth this week. And Lord, um, pray that you would um, just bless us all, that we'd all read the book of Isaiah, Hosea this week. And Lord, we'd glean the truth that you have for us there. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.